You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, hey, welcome back. Excited to start this with you today. Just a quick heads up about what you're about to hear. In case you're brand new today or you aren't on our email list or you didn't able or weren't able, did not read the church email this week, just want to give you a little heads up. There will be some discussion about the topics of sex and sexual expression in the message today, all right? So if you have a child or a teen with you, you know your kid best, just want to give you a heads up as to what you would choose to do with them. Fair enough? All right, here we go. Let's look into our scripture passage today. It's going to be from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here we go. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God had called them. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. <laughs> Some of you are like, I like the Bible now. Yes, I do. It's... It's true after all, right? What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. And that's the reading of God's word, as people said. Amen. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, over the last two years, we know this. Many of us have struggled in many ways. Uh, the, all the separation, all the anxiety, all the anger have caused us to struggle in many ways. All kind of challenges all over the place. I know this. You know this. We know this. And so, as a pastor, as someone who is involved in the lives of all kinds of people and all kinds of situations, I'd like to try to address some of the main challenges that I have seen, that our church staff has seen, that our church leaders here have seen, because, and specifically over these last couple of years, our singles have struggled uniquely, marriages here have struggled uniquely, and parents certainly have struggled uniquely. And when we struggle, it oftentimes brings up existential questions such as, at their most basic level, what does it even mean to be single right now? What does it even mean to be married right now? What does it mean to be a parent right now? And so I'd like to try to take a stab over these next three weeks at those answering those questions in this brand new series. As you saw from the, the title there, it's called Family a theology for singleness, marriage, and parenting 
in the kingdom of God. And all those words, as you might imagine, they are chosen on purpose, especially when it comes to that first word, the word theology. Because the reason I use that word, it's pretty simple. Theology means basically, basically, (laughs) your thoughts about God and how God intersects a particular subject, which means two things right away. Number one, it means everyone is a theologian. You may be a good one, you may be a bad one, you may be somewhere on that spectrum, but everyone is a theologian because everyone has thoughts about God. And second, our view of God and how he intersects that subject in our lives deeply influences not only how we live, but also how we feel about how we live every day. So my goal over the next few weeks is not only to help you think better, but to feel better and therefore to live better wherever you find yourself, all right? And as we get going, here's what I'm gonna ask of you. I'm gonna ask of you uh, to make a kind of deal with me over the next three weeks. And here's our deal. You ready? Yes, you are. I'm gonna ask each of you, for those of you who call yourself Jesus followers, and especially Mosaic is your home, to care deeply about these next three weeks. I'm gonna ask you to not tap out if you don't find yourself in one of these categories every week. In other words, please don't tap out, check out, walk out, if you're single and we're talking about marriage, or if you're married and we're talking about being single, okay, you know, I'm not talking, I'm asking you to like think about it, like that's not going to talk to me, and you just stay home and watch Squid Game on Netflix or whatever you would do otherwise. I'm just, no, I'm just asking you to care about your neighbor here, okay, because how their life goes does affect in part in some way your own. So that's your part of the deal. Here's my part of the deal. My part is to make each week as relevant to everyone as I possibly can and to give you as many compelling reasons each week to not tap out, check out, walk out, but instead to listen, engage, and be better. All right? Deal? Deal. Deal. So you're not so sure. That's okay. We'll, we'll get there. But today I'd like to begin by looking at what the Christian scriptures have to say in specific about singleness. And here's why. Because not only does the Bible itself talk about singleness, not only is our church itself filled with many, many single people, a large percentage of single people, not only do we live in a city, in an area that disproportionately attracts singles to live and work and move here, but maybe above all, because even if you aren't single right now, you're not single currently, single anymore, it's possibly and highly likely that you will be single again one day. Even if it's not your status right now, it might be, most likely will be again. Now, if you're married here, that might not be the brightest thought you've had all day so far, okay? (laughs) But it is perhaps the truest thought you've had or been introduced to you. But even in the middle of all that, I want to say there's a brightness, there's an incredible hope that the Bible points us to about what it means to be single. So to see that brightness, to look at that hope, I want to point us to three things from this crazy, radical, maybe even offensive passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at these three things in this order. I want to take a look at number one, the falsehood the falsehood of singleness. Number two, the family of and for singles. And finally, the fulfillment of every single heart. There's a falsehood this passage exposes, a family appoints us to, and a fulfillment we all need to make any relationship work. Now, I'll spend the majority of my time on point number one, so don't get nervous, okay? 
I'll be quicker on two and three. Here we go. Number one, now let's look at a falsehood, actually the falsehood of singleness. And this falsehood is a specific lie. I think we've all felt, we've all heard, maybe even imbibed in one form or another. But thankfully, this lie has been captured for us for all time, all peoples, all eternity in a specific scene from a specific movie, which you may know, and we're going to take a look at it right now. Are we ready? Here's the lie. I love you. You complete me. (laughs) There it is. You completely, the Jerry Maguire lie is that if you are single in any way, you are incomplete, half-baked, not yet ready for life, fundamentally inferior. Like Tom, Tom there was saying he was incomplete until he had Renee. You know, now he's complete. Thank you, Cameron Crowe. You wrote that, put it in there for all time for us to look at. No, that's the lie. If you're single, then you're incomplete. Now that thought is offensive to me. I hope it's offensive at some level to you because let's think about it. Singles come in lots of ways, don't they? Yeah, they've never been married and single. Widowed, single again. Divorced, single again. Single in 25, single in 55. Those are two different ways, very different than being single, aren't they? Right, definitely not the same. How about in college and single? How about toddler and single. How about newborn? Still single, right? Now you laugh, but it's true because we would never look at a newborn baby and say, that baby, incomplete. Like half a person, right? When they're born. So my question is, when does that happen? When does a person become then incomplete? Why, when do they need Jerry Maguire to step in and tell him stuff to make him feel okay, right? Listen, the ultimate falsehood of singleness is that a single person is not a complete person. And that specific lie takes on, I think, two forms in our culture, what I'll call, and we'll look at, the conservative lie and the liberal lie. And I think the Apostle Paul speaks to both. Here we go. The conservative lie goes like this. You're not complete unless you're married. And the reason I'm calling it that conservative is because in many, though not all, not all, traditional conservative backgrounds, cultures, even faiths, you're not really, a person isn't really fully accepted or seen as part of the community or mature or whatever until they're married. And sometimes, sometimes, unfortunately, and I've been a part of this, even well-meaning Christians and churches have arrived in this place. Like unintentionally, church can become the place which really for the marrieds, right? They let the singles, like the kids, kind of peek in from the kids' table, right? No, that's not what church is supposed to be. Because look at what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He looks at the whole church, whole church, Leading it, by the way, planet. He says, I wish that all of you (laughs) were as I am. And how was that? The passage tells you. Paul tells you. Single, celibate, complete. I'll back it up for a second. In conservative Christian culture, and in many ways, part of that, embrace aspects of that for sure. But has it not been popular to say this little phrase over the years? WWJD. 
this one, on the bracelet, right? What would Jesus do? The idea being that the ultimate Christian life should look identical to Jesus Christ. And that's a great question and a great thought. So let's ask it here. What would Jesus do when it came, when it comes to being married? He wouldn't. What would Jesus do when it came to having kids? He wouldn't, right? He would be single and celibate and perfectly complete, focused on his life's mission. And that's why Paul can say the same. This is why Paul could look out at a whole church and say, hey, marrieds, I wish all of you were just like me, right? Not, gosh, man, I'm single and it sucks. Lord, you know, went, you know. I wish I could be like you. No, he's saying, I wish all of you could be like me. WWJD, how about this? WWPD, what would Paul do? The same as WWJD, right? I'm just, at my point is, I'm just trying to ask us to all drop the lie that can unintentionally make its way into the hearts of marrieds and singles alike through a combination of nonstop bachelor watch parties, <laughs> endless reruns of Say Yes to the Dress, and even some imbalanced Christian teaching, because it's just not true. Okay. But the liberal lie is equally as untrue, which is this. It says this, you're not complete unless you're sexually active. Okay. I'll give you an example. In the news this past week, there was this big story all about a very famous country singer I had never heard of uh, who had posted, this is what makes the news today, nude selfies to her Instagram account. And when some of her fans suggested that perhaps they didn't want to see this, she called them prudes. And another very famous singer, this one I had heard of, came to her defense and said this, this is a quote from the article, hey girl, proud of you, expression, not repression. Expression, not repression. Now, that's a thought, that's a cultural narrative we hear floating around a lot, and it underscores this other side, the other half of the lie, which is this, that you're really not living, you're really not complete, you're not fully human, unless you can express your sexuality when, where, how that you want, and anything less is repressive or prudish, right? Now, maybe those fans who wrote that really are, were, prudish, repressive, I hope not, but I just want to say this for the record, the Bible certainly isn't. Just go read the Song of Songs with your kids, or maybe not. <laughs> with its imagery about giant tusks and jewels and hands thrust into keyholes. Read Proverbs. It's talk about fruit, breasts, the male fountain overflowing. And remember, this is from, let's not forget, roughly 3,000 years ago. Talk about sexual expression. The Bible beat us all to the point, okay? And right there, right there, by the way, I just kept my end of our deal. <laughs> it's my end of the deal because you're all, you're all listening. All right. So the Bible isn't afraid to talk about sex or sexual expression, okay? But hear me, it does value your body. And sexuality so much it has an incredibly high view of both. Look at how Paul begins the passage. He's about to address a cultural narrative in his day. He said, now for the matters you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What's he doing? Well, here he's addressing, he's undoing 
what we'll call the, the dirty view of sex, which is that sex is dirty, it's not to be discussed, and not even to be experienced. He's picking up this extreme prudish impulse about the topic and goes on to dismantle it. We read it in the passage. It got a little awkward. But he said, no, no, no. Husbands and wives should have sex. Ought to. Their bodies belong to one another, and that's a good thing. But, and we didn't get to it in the reading, but just a few verses before in the previous chapter, chapter 6, Paul picks up another view, not the sex is dirty view, but basically the sex as dinner view. Sex is just an appetite kind of view. Look at it, 1 Corinthians 6. He goes after this other view. He says, again, you say, again addressing another cultural narrative, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Now, this is a way of saying, because people were saying, well, God doesn't really care about what I do with my body. Like, the stomach's for food, food's for the stomach. Uh, you know, body's for sex, sex is for the body. Uh, I get hungry, I eat, uh, I feel sexy, I have sex, right? One is just for the other. And to <laughs> deny it would be to deny what makes me fully human. Paul says, you say that, but it's not true. That view is a lie. That God doesn't care about what you do with your body. Because he looks and he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Let me say this. If you're a Christian, now anyone, of course it matters what you do in your heart. Motives matter. What you do in your heart matters. But it also matters what you do in and with your body. Right? The person says, I didn't mean to run you over. Okay, but you did, right? <laughs> With your body. That's what happened. Here's why the Bible says this matters. It's because the Christian faith is the most body positive faith system there is. Think about it. It says that the human body was designed on purpose by a loving creator. Unlike the ancient Babylonians who said, no, no, no. Humans were just made out of the bloody carcasses of dead deities. Or like atheists who say our bodies are just cosmic accidents. And then as Christians, we believe that God's spirit can live inside our bodies, make them into his temple. Unlike Gnostics, modern and ancient, who said, no, no, your body is just straight bad. And as Christians, we believe that God will hold those accountable who harm the human body. And one day we believe that we'll get a new body. Unlike Eastern faiths who say that, the, no, 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 the goal of faith is to escape the body. Listen, your body matters. It was made to honor God. It's for God, which is why Paul can say this in 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Don't you know, again, rhetorical question, that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. So Paul's reference here to prostitution was a reference to the way in his day most men experienced or chased sexual pleasure outside of marriage. Very few unmarried adults, Greco-Roman world. So if you wanted sex, man especially, before or outside marriage, you went to a prostitute. Paul's saying we don't do that as Christians. What's he doing? He's just reinforcing again the unidirectional, historic, biblical view of sex in the human body, which says that sex was not designed for self-repression on one end or just straight self-expression on the other, but it was designed 
for self-giving. Self-giving. Sex, in the historic biblical view, is a gift one complete male gives one complete female. Vice versa. They give each other. The two, two become one. Not one half plus one half becomes a whole. No. Two complete singles become one married union. Paul, again, he's just upholding this incredibly high view the Christian faith has as regards to its sexuality. It holds its sexuality. It's not dirty on one hand. It's not just dinner on the other, but it's designed to express and reaffirm whole life union. And the Christian faith, listen, you never give your body to someone to whom you have not already given your whole life for life. The point is, Paul's undoing one lie in two forms. He's saying, because you are complete in Christ right now, you don't have to be married to fully live. Nor do you have to have sex to be fully human. That's the lie. But how? But how? How can Paul seemingly minimize the importance of marriage while maintaining such a high view of sexual expression? It's because of, number two, some of you are saying, thank God, about time to the family because of the family of and for singles. What Paul's about to say here about family in the kingdom of God is mind-blowing and culture shifting. Look at what he says in verses 27, 28. He asks this question. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. I'll put this in modern language. He's saying this basically. Are you engaged or married? Great. Are you single? Great. So you're staring at me. It's because it's hard to grasp how big a deal this was unless you understand there was no real honor, no real success, no real achievement in ancient cultures outside the family. There was no such thing as individual success, individual honor, individual achievement. You had to be married or you had none of it. And then the Christian faith comes along, and for the first time in human history, it lifts up the status of single people and says, this is an honorable, successful, accomplished way to be. Just like that, Paul looks at the gospel, and he upends thousands of years of cultural norms. In a moment, Stanley Hauerwas, scholar at Duke, Duke University, they just keep winning today, don't they? All right. He said one of the clearest differences between Christianity and all other religions was Christianity's paradigm idea of singleness as a way of life for its followers. Paul and Jesus both say that some people will choose not to be married, and that's a good thing. This was revolutionary in ancient societies, and the implications have rarely been appreciated. Now, creating a family was not something we had to do. And Rodney Stark, Christian historian, put it like this. If Christian women became widowed, they enjoyed substantial advantages over those around them. Pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. Caesar Augustus had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. But among Christians, widowhood was highly respected, and the church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them a choice whether they wanted to remarry or not. So why is all this true? Why did it happen? Here's why. Put it like this. Christians looked, first century, and then from then on, looked upstream to define themselves, not downstream. 
Did you catch that? They looked upstream to define themselves, not downstream. They did not need family heirs downstream to derive their value. No, they got it from looking upstream because they were already heirs in a family system, in a greater family. They didn't look downstream to their children's status to define them. They looked upstream to their status in the family of God. In other words, there was a radical egalitarianism when it came to marital status in the family of God. If God, this was their reasoning, if God was our heavenly father and Jesus was, as Paul put it in Romans 8, great chapter, great book. You should listen to a series on it sometime, by the way. Romans 8. If Jesus is our firstborn brother, that means we already, as siblings in a kind of a way, we already have this status that's untouchable within the family of God. And if Jesus really was resurrected, and he was, that means his followers will be one day too. And that's why Paul could go on to say this next. Look at his argument. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, whether you're married or you're single, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they weren't. Those who buy something as if it weren't really theirs. Those who use the things of this world as if they weren't really engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Now, people have looked at Paul's views here and said, Paul was wrong about what he's saying because he thought Jesus was coming back like any second, for sure within his lifetime. Now, listen, they're wrong because while Paul may have hoped that, look at what he says here. He doesn't say the world has passed away. No, he says this world is passing away. What's this mean? Paul understood. You should too. We live in something theologians call the overlap of the ages. Overlap of the ages. That is, Jesus' first coming was an announcement to the old age. It was like a herald that announced the beginning of something new. The defeat of evil and death and sin. And Jesus' second coming will come to complete that. It's called the consummation. And will bring the defeat of evil, sin, and death fully to pass. To the world in its present form. It's passing away. The world of only sin, only death, that's going away. Jesus has introduced an active agent, something better. And one day we will have the fullness of it. And even though we don't have it fully yet, because we live, yes, in the overlap of the ages, we can have a foretaste of it right now within the church of Jesus Christ and the family of God. We can let go, therefore, of having to place our ultimate happiness in a relationship in this life. Let go of having to have all of our meaning expressed through only our family because we look upstream to the greater family we're a part of first, the family of God. Ancient traditional society said, your children tell you who you are. Our modern, overly romanticized culture says, your love partner tells you who you are. But Christianity says, only Christ tells you who you are. So, you're married? Great. You're single? Great. Christ tells you who you are. So where can we find the power, in the end, to reject the lie, the falsehood, and embrace the family? To reject the falsehood, embrace the family. It's through number here. Number three, right here seeing this fulfillment. There's a fulfillment here for every single heart. See what I did there? Okay. Every single heart Jesus Christ uh, holds out to them. 
In John chapter 4, here it is. John chapter 4, Jesus is at the well with a Samaritan woman. Remember their interaction? Some of you do. It's this amazing interaction. Jesus is there. He's trying to tell this woman something about who he is and about why she's living the way that she is. And Jesus is there. They're at a well. She's drawing water. He looks at her and says, I can give you, not like this water, but something better, like living water. And if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. And she says, sir, I would like some of that living water. That sounds really great. And what does Jesus do? He immediately turns the conversation around and starts talking to her, digging into her life about her romantic life, about her relational life, and about her sex life. He says, all right, bring me your husband. I think I'd like to meet the fellow. She says, you got me there. I don't have a husband. Jesus says, I knew it all along. He said, you're right. You're actually not married. You're kind of single. You're living with a guy now. And maybe the reason you're doing that is because you've given up on marriage because, yeah, you've been married five times before this. He's saying, you haven't just been unlucky in love. You haven't just been broken by love. Here's what he's saying. You've been broken by the search for love itself apart from me. See that? You centered your life around men, centered your life around relationships, marriage. How's that working for you? It's not working at all. He's, Jesus is saying here, make me your one true love. Make me the center of your search. Stop maybe smothering your spouse by making them bear the weight of your unfulfilled, impossible to fulfill deepest longings. Or maybe stop being cynical about love and just giving up on the institution of marriage altogether because, hey, why bother? Men are bad or women are bad. Just get what you can get when you can get it with who you can get it with. No, stop all of that, Jesus is saying. Allow me to be your living water fulfill you. Make me your one true love. Jesus Christ says to your heart, my heart, every human heart, the love he has for you is beyond what any human can give. His love is what we were made for. Look at why. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he who unites himself to the Lord Jesus is one with him in spirit. Paul is saying, listen, two in oneness with Christ is really what human two-in-oneness, human marriage, human sexuality is really pointing to. Do you understand what this means? This means that all marriage is, all sexuality is, is but a dim hint of what it means to fall into the arms of Jesus Christ for forever. The gospel says that the love Jesus has for us longs to pour into us like water into a basin can free us from allowing either the tyranny of thinking another person is going to complete us or the tyranny of some cultural message that determines whether or not we're complete. No, no, no. You can say when you know Christ, in other words, no thanks, Tom Cruise. (laughs) I complete no one. Only Christ completes me. Hey, let's apply this quickly. As we begin to close, close, apply this real quick in three ways. We're going to apply this quickly to singles, to marrieds, and then to us all. For singles, first of all, I want to encourage you to consider your mission. Consider your mission. The reality is, of course, while you are, you are busy and hardworking and accomplished and educated, in general, in general, the single life is less complicated than the married life, especially if you are single with no kids. 
Paul just acknowledges this and he says here in, the, in 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, you're free. You've got some time, extra time in general to devote yourself to the things of God. Use that freedom and time to bless others. Just like you might have used your time, energy to bless kids and a spouse. If you don't have them, just use your energy on mission to bless others, family of God. So consider your mission. For marriage, let me encourage you. Open your lives to deep and meaningful friendships with singles. Listen, I've got a community group. The most fun people at my group are the singles. My friend David walks in, and he's got 42 double-doubles for the 17 people that are there. You just know that it's game on. The party's on. He's so fun. The most fun I've had at any event this past year has been our singles conference back in October. So my friendship, my friendships with singles just makes me better. Can for you too. And for all of us together, finally, let me encourage you. Don't be jealous of the other's status. Here's what I mean. I mean is we tend to almost always look to the highest point of happiness of someone else's imagined life to measure our own. For example, if you're single, you can think this sometimes. Sometimes you can think, all my married friends are blissfully in love. (laughs) Maybe, maybe they are. Or maybe they can't sleep again because their babies are screaming, they're on the brink of divorce, their kids are off the rails, or they have more hospital bills than dollar bills. You can tweet that, that was your statement for today. Maybe your married friends would give anything for the simplicity and cheapness of only having to feed one mouth. One mouth. Because that would be amazing. So please don't sit at home and think, if only I had someone to love me. You do, is what Paul is saying. You don't think, if only I were cherished and wanted and a part of a family. You are a family of God. And marriage, marriage, the reverse is true. Don't, don't just sit around and think about when you got to go golfing and your whole house was like a giant man cave or when you had time to go get your nails done or had lunch with your girlfriends or whatever you spent your free time doing, not trying to reinforce stereotypes. Women, you can golf. Men, I guess you can get your nails done. Okay, listen. My point is, remember, remember, Mary's. Remember when you thought this? I can't wait till someone can't keep their hands off me. Remember that? But look where it got you now, right? Some of you, you would give anything for no one to talk to you or to touch you for like a whole week or more. And you forget that where you are now is where you wanted to be and where some of your single friends want to be. My point is, don't be jealous. Don't be jealous. Remember, this is why Paul said married, great. Single, great. They both have ups and downs, but you are all complete in Christ and in the family of God. Hope you can say amen. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Lord, I thank you for our time today, for this word that's in your word about the radical completeness we have in the gospel. Changes culture, shapes our hearts, changes our minds, influences our choices. Lord, I'm praying that every person here today, especially our singles, would feel complete and seen, supported, cared for within the family of God. And may our church and our lives reflect this truth. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen, Galen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.